A foundation dedicated to the furthering of military medicine is about to celebrate 40 years. It was signed into law by President Reagan and later named for the senator who sponsored the bill authorizing it. For what it does and how it works with the military, the president and CEO of the Henry M. Jackson Foundation for the Advancement of Military Medicine, Dr. Joseph Caravallo, talked with Tom Temin. And we should point out that you practiced military medicine for an Army career at which you retired as a major general. That's right. Uh, before I went into executive medicine, I was a co- nuclear cardiologist. Nuclear cardiologist. That's pretty high tech. Uh, no, it's uh, it's uh, all cardiology is high tech. So uh, I was just running the mill, if you will. All right, and that gets to the question I think we should establish first: is what is the definition of military medicine? I mean, people think of battlefield injuries as something which, in fact, the military does specialize in and does advanced trauma care. But it's more than that, isn't it? Yeah, I'd like people to think about medicine in general, and then with adding the adjective military, it's for whom the medicine is applied. So imagine that you want to make our warfighters more agile, more resilient, more survivable, and what does that uh, take within the healthcare spectrum? So it is promoting wellness, it is protecting health, it is preventing illness, it is then treating, caring, rehabilitating, and reintegrating. Now, the military itself has a large medical research apparatus. There's also the NIH, uh, government-wide, and the Veterans Affairs Department all have research arms and are always looking to further the medicine. Where does the foundation fit into this whole apparatus? So uh, military medicine is unique in that it is focused on the warfighter. So everything that is done research-wise for their benefit must be done to fill a gap for the uh, warfighter. And that's different than NIH or some of the other funding uh, organizations. HJF is an implementing partner to the research that is done within the DOD. So as you mentioned, it is authorized by Congress, but we are a civilian nonprofit who together is working with the DOD to conduct research and development uh, um, uh, uh, programs. And give us a sense of the scope of the organization. It's not just a few people in some labs here and there. Well, we have uh, approximately 3,000 people, and we're in 14 countries worldwide, uh, mostly distributed within the uh, Maryland area, but uh, two-thirds or or more of them within the United States, and then sprinkled across Southeast Asia, Africa, uh, and Europe. And before we get to the research itself, how does it get conducted? That is to say, does the foundation employ staff that are researchers in laboratories themselves, or do you funnel grant money to academia, for example? Yeah, so probably a good time to to tell your listeners that the word foundation was given to us by Congress, but it's a little bit of a fake out now because people think, well, if you're a foundation, you're granting money to do research. We are simply the a civilian entity. The foundation was to... to demonstrate we're a civilian entity partnering with the military to conduct research. So when a researcher wants to wants to do a study, they need to buy equipment, they need to uh, employ people, bring on scientists. That's primarily what we do. So the, our, our contribution ranges from world-class scientists to research assistants and administrative assistants. And therefore, the work of research is done by foundation members. That's correct. So so the uh, DOD put out a list of the, the top 10 things that they have accomplished since 9-11. HCF has been integral to eight of those things. 
Interesting. We're speaking with Dr. Joseph Caravallo. He is the president and CEO of the Henry Jackson Foundation for the Advancement of Military Medicine. So your priorities come from DOD. That's correct. And you mentioned there were some efforts since 9-11 that the foundation was active in. Tell us about some of those. Uh, What we've learned uh, in in our period of war that has I'm very proud has translated into civilian health as well. Number one is the importance of of controlling bleeding, and the use of tourniquets and other devices such as a resuscitative balloon uh, occlusion of the aorta device, uh, with which we worked with the uh, inventor to show how you can stop excessive bleeding while controlling the bleeding while conducting resuscitation of the individual. Interesting. So that is in that trauma area. That's correct. But then there are other areas beyond that. Sure, sure. You know, uh, probably 80% of individuals who are unable to be fully employed are related to disease and what we call non-battle injuries, not wounds from war, from shrapnel and gunshot wounds, et cetera, et cetera. So of those, primarily illness. So a lot of effort is done in the vaccine world to prevent illness. As you can imagine, a soldier, sailor, or marine uh, is, uh, may be called by the president to go anywhere in this world on a moment's notice. So it's more important to have a vaccine than it is to have a treatment for an illness. Uh, we don't want this, the, the troop to get the ill in the first place. So a lot of effort in, on infectious diseases. And Congress has been busy on some other fronts, too, and that has affected VA payouts, and that's in the area of Agent Orange exposure in recent years. Finally, that came to a head, and legislation was passed, and now more recently, burn pits, which would be mainly an Afghanistan and Iraq affair, but also exposure to those types of chemicals and burning types of exposures going back, I think, to Korea in this case, or at least Vietnam, uh, for those payouts. Have you done research in some of those areas? So we are primarily on the military side or the active duty side. So the VA investigators are, are heavily involved in that aspect after the fact as we see that, uh, the DOD is focused on how can we prevent such things, such exposures, such illnesses associated with those uh, in the future. And that's where we're involved. Got it. So what are some other projects going on of interest? A lot of the COVID work was done by the military, and, and, and we were involved with that. A lot of HIV uh, research is, is being done. Uh, there's TBI work done, PTSD uh, work done, sleep studies, performance optimization. It really is a cross-cutting. Uh, anything that can help a warfighter that you might imagine is in there. And let me. this is probably a good time to say that what's so exciting about this is even though all our work must be focused on the warfighter, it's just a couple of chess moves away from knowing that that can also benefit a civilian. So the, the vision is to promote not only military health, but also civilian health. Right. There have been examples, for example, of uh, VA working and different organizations working with groups like the NFL because head injury is head injury regardless of the source. That's correct. What's unique about that, though, is uh, the, the trauma to the brain can be cumulative and impactful uh, with a long-term bad outcome possible. But uh, blunt trauma effect on the brain is different than barrel trauma 
effect on the brain. That's what we're finding. And the barrel trauma comes from explosions. You can imagine someone who's trying to breach a dwelling or using a bazooka-like armament is a different pressure on the brain, and we're finding that's different. So we look at it differently. And so that kind of research can actually affect how training is done, too. It's not just warfare per se, but training, you're also exposed to these kinds of pressures and and dangers. That's correct. In fact, uh, another 80% rule is 80% of TBI, or we'll say mild concussion, occurs in training, not in deployment. And I wanted to ask you about mental health, because when you mentioned PTSD, performance enhancement and optimization, that bridges the mind and the body. And of course, suicide prevention and mental health issues in general have become major focuses for Again, the veteran population and the active duty. That's right. I, I'm really proud of the DOD and in in how they it's a whole-person approach to uh, human health. So they look at it within the human domain. So it's how can someone perform optimally in austere conditions with the stresses of deployment or combat uh, going forward. So all aspects, again, prevention, protection, and then treatment are, are at play. And I'm, and, and I'm very pleased that it is in all what we say, left of the boom. How can you prevent the boom from happening in the first place? Sure. And so what would you say are the grand challenges for military medical research in the near term? I think uh, um, the definition of where our warfighters are going to be fighting and under what conditions and against what adversary is what DOD is looking at, and that that changes then the requirements. So if you are fighting a near peer, let's say, as an example, or you're, you're remote, or you're in the middle of the ocean, your need to care for that individual for a longer time is greater. So what is needed to do that? What telemedicine is needed? How can you extend the reach of the surgeon to a non-surgeon so that resuscitation can occur earlier? Um, How can we keep people alive longer until they reach a surgeon? Those are all exciting uh, challenges that uh, face us now. And we're seeing different nature of war. I mean, if you look at what's going on in Ukraine, that looks like old-fashioned battlefield land warfare that everyone said was obsolete. But yet, if you look at what something, say, God forbid, a conflict with China would look like, it could be conducted by almost totally remote means, uncrewed, unmanned types of weapons and craft, which maybe takes more people out of physical danger, but then that gets back into that idea of, of the mental danger. Right. And and, and add to that uh, uh, the cyber uh, threat that you can take down systems that you're relying on that are internet-based. All right. And I should ask you, too, what does all this cost to operate the foundation? Is it appropriated funds? Well, so uh, Congress doesn't give us money. It is when there's a research award or a funding stream from some source and, and people need help to facilitate that, we, we partner. So if you look at in 1990, we managed $10 million of, of awards. In 2022, we're managing over $500 million of federal awards going forward. So that just uh, speaks to the scale and, and the agility and the long-lasting nature of HGF over the years and the trust that DOD has in, in work with. They don't have to work with us, but we feel uh, and we strive every day to be the partner of choice. But you're out there competing with uh, Johns Hopkins and the other famous medical research institutions. Well, for DOD uh, research, yes, uh, we, we have academia is, is looking to partner with DOD, industry, 
other NGOs and other nonprofits. So it's a it's a tough world, but we're very proud of the team that we have going again. And going you keep it. getting reauthorized. Well, the the authorization is 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 good, so it's not a time limited authorization. But uh, just as we were put in, uh, Congress could take us out. So I do believe that they're they're confident uh, uh, that we're doing a, a a good job in support of DoD. Dr. Joseph Caravallo is president and CEO of the Henry M. Jackson Foundation for the Advancement of Military Medicine. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com/federaldrive.